Well, JP, I want to start this week's conversation with just a moment of plagiarism here. I'm going to steal something from you that I've heard you talk quite a bit about here over the last couple of months, particularly for a lot of us that coach in winter sports. We're coming out of this season where we've had exit interviews with our players. We've gone through the evaluation con conversation with our administrators. We've met with our assistant coaches. And if they're anything like me, I come home and I've got a Google Doc that's page after page of suggestions and feedback about what can we do better? What can we do differently next year? And when we see something like that, everybody's got great ideas about how to fix the offense, how to fix the defense, what to do with playing time and rotations for next year. Sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming. And I've heard you challenge coaches with this phrase, asking them in the midst of all of this, but what are your convictions? There's a great idea to do this differently. There's a great idea to approach this differently. But how do we navigate these boatloads of feedback that we get at different times during the year and still stay true to our convictions? I heard another coach frame it this way. How do we keep from losing ourselves in this sea of everyone's opinion being voiced back to us? Now, you and I have talked a lot on this podcast about the value of soliciting feedback. In fact, when we bring clients into our mentorship program, one of the first things that we do is we do a 360 degree feedback form to try to gain perspective on their coaching and their program and their situation. And at the same time, we also encourage our coaches to be able to identify their identity, figure out their core values and understand who they truly are, because that's what's going to drive them to be the best self, to be the best coach that they can be. So this week on the podcast, we're gonna talk a little bit about the both and. How do we stay true to our convictions and at the same time, welcome feedback to improve our coaching? Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm your host, JP Nurbin, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Nate Sanderson. The mission of this podcast is to help you become a better leader and build a better culture. In addition to this podcast, I'm the founder of TOC, which provides one-on-one -on -one coaching and consulting for leaders. Learn more about us at tocculture.com. This episode is brought to you by the TOC newsletter. Every Thursday, our newsletter includes two things you don't want to miss out on. Firstly, the notes to that week's podcast episode. Whether you're listening while driving the car, out for a run, or doing the dishes, we don't want you to miss the biggest takeaways from each episode. Secondly, each newsletter is a short article from myself or Nate on leadership and culture. These articles are designed to inspire, encourage, and provide practical insights into leadership and culture building. Our content is a perfect fit for anyone who wants to stay up to date with the latest trends and insights in culture building. You can subscribe to the newsletter at tocculture.com or by clicking on the link in the details of each episode. So, Nate, as you alluded to kind of in the opener there, one of the conversations I repeatedly have with have had with several coaches this offseason is that they've got they got to the end of the year and there was this feeling that coaches had of they, that they lost themselves. They didn't coach, they didn't stay true to who they are as a coach. They didn't stay true to who they are as a person. And I think one of the great challenge is that many of these coaches were facing is that they are trying to evolve and grow. They're trying to improve themselves as a coach and as a leader. And they're making changes, changes into how they do things, how they go out and how they operate. They've opened themselves up to feedback from their players, from their parents, from the administrators, right? They've taken all this feedback and they've tried to make changes in how they do things. But in that process, 
sometimes that feedback might have challenged their identity as a coach, their, you know, who they are as a person. And they start to make little micro changes over a period of time. And then all of a sudden they get to the end of the year and they're like, wait, all the things that I said are really, really important to me. I've started to bend. I've started to make sacrifices in those things. And, and I, I think this ties so well with a story I read recently in the book of Joe by Tom Verducci about Joe Madden, where you know, he was brought into the Chicago Cubs because he was such a unique and different type of manager. And those things, they helped him to be successful. They helped the Cubs to go on and win a World Series. But shortly after the World Series, there was a few players, kind of second or third tier players, that started giving feedback to management, to Theo Epstein and a few people in the front office around how they didn't really like Madden's Maddenisms and his crazy t-shirts and all his, you know, different ideas. And that feedback, they took in the front office and they started bringing it back down to Madden and saying, hey, you know, you need to make some changes here because some of the players, you know, especially these younger guys, you know, they don't really connect with you, you know? And so Madden gets this feedback and he starts to slowly make changes. He starts to kind of break from his traditions of the t-shirts and the slogans that he loves to start every year with and a big speech that he has with the players uh, to kind of kick off this, the season. And at the end of the year, he gets fired. It, you know, they send him on his way. But what was probably most discouraging for Madden is just like the coaches I was talking about earlier, he had lost himself in that. He wasn't staying true to you know, who he was as a person, who he was as a coach. And this isn't that Joe Madden is resistant to change and evolve. And in fact, if you study and you learn about him, he has evolved significantly as a leader and as a coach and as a manager over the course of his career. And so I think this is what we really want to get into today is really how can we focus on listening you know, to criticism, taking that on, and making sure that we can stay true to who we are as a coach while also continuing to evolve and grow. Well, JP, that story of Joe Madden losing his job after winning the World Series with Chicago certainly hits close to home, not just because I'm a Cubs fan, but it reminds me of my experience a little bit at Linmar going into that job, being hired because we had done such a good job at Springville on the job before building culture and the way that we played and we shared it and our kids enjoyed the game. And all of those things were attractive for me as a candidate for this job. And then I get hired and Two years later, I'm getting emails from the administration that are telling me we've got to play the upperclassmen and we've got to do something different on offense and they don't like your mental health days. And I remember as we were moving away from some of those things, just to try to get through that third year, thinking to myself, well, if we don't do mental health days and we're not sharing it and, and playing in space, you know, the way that we always have, and I'm not, you know, playing the players that earn it, that have deserved to play because they've earned it by their performance, I'm not really sure who I am. And obviously in that situation, it ended the same way as it did for Joe Madden, where they showed me the door. But quite honestly, JP, there was some peace in that moment as they asked me to resign simply because like, I just wasn't willing to compromise on some of the most fundamental values and beliefs that I have as a coach. One of those being playing time is earned. And we'd say over and over, I don't care if you're an upperclassman or what you know club team you play for or who your parents are or, or any of that other stuff. It just matters what you do in competition with players in our gym. And that was one place that I just, I couldn't be myself and, and compromise on that. And it cost me my job, it, you know, that season. 
Now, those are a couple of dramatic examples. And a lot of times it's not when your job is on the line. It's not necessarily that your administrators or your players or your assistant coaches or parents are asking you to make some kind of a, a severe compromise to what you believe in. But I do think, JP, that coaches find themselves in that, that swirl of somebody thinks this and Twitter thinks that and, you know, so-and-so I heard this on the podcast and then my assistant coach came to me with this. And it can be hard to stay moored. It can be hard to stay anchored to the thing maybe that made us successful in the beginning. So what do you what do you say to a coach when they find themselves in that sort of abyss of all kinds of opinion and still trying to stay true to who they are? Yeah, I think one of the first things you need to really make sure you're distinguishing between is what are your opinions and what are your beliefs? And you at Limar had certain beliefs around playing time that wasn't necessarily a, an opinion on who's the best player out there, but it's a belief that things should be earned in the program, right? And to ask you to sacrifice that belief would be to lose a bit of yourself. And the same goes for your mental health Wednesdays, right? That is something about you showing you care and you're investing in the whole person. You're trying to coach the whole person. That's a belief of yours, right? Now, if someone could challenge your opinion that the mental health Wednesdays is the best way to go about that or not, right? But that wasn't what it was at stake. What was at stake was your belief. And so this is where, first off, is just trying to identify, is this a belief of mine or is this opinion? When it comes to opinion, to go back to Adam Grant, he always has a great line of, a, a sign of wisdom is having strong opinions weakly held, right? So we can have strong opinions that we backed up by data and research all season around this is the best way to play, this is, you know, but we're weekly holding those. And so we're open to feedback. We're open to the possibility that isn't the best way. But when it comes to our beliefs, we need to have conviction. Now, conviction does not mean, though, that we are, are stubborn and we're not open to discussion. We can still engage in dialogue around why we believe playing time should be earned or why we believe we should be focusing on the mental health of our athletes and, and try to be transparent and help people to understand why this is the way we will do things as long as we are the coach at this high school. And that's just not going to change, right? So I think there's, when we're having conviction, doesn't mean we just charge right ahead and say, this is the way it's going to be. I still think we need to be inviting people into that conversation and dialogue to help them understand things. Well, let's think about another example, JP. I remember in my first year at Lenmar, we had started playing zone defense. We were playing some 2-3 and some 1-3-1. This is what we had done at Springville where I was before. And about two-thirds of the way through the season, one of my juniors came up to me after a game and said, Coach, you know, do you think we could play some man-to-man? -man? Let's just try it. You know, The last seven or eight games of the season, we'll see if we can make some headway, the zone we were struggling in for a variety of different reasons. And so legitimately, she's trying to think about what would be best for the team here. And she's suggesting we change our whole defensive scheme to go to man to man. Now, at this point, we're like two and 15 on the season. I'm already on edge. I've already gotten, you know, emails from parents about other, you know, valuable suggestions to change our schemes. And so I'm already sort of predisposed to being defensive. And my first reaction to that, although I didn't necessarily verbalize it this way, was that she doesn't think I can coach. She's just like all the parents that don't think I know what I'm doing, that that small school stuff will never work in a big school. And all those sort of criticisms that rolled through my head made me initially want to simply just defend my decision to start in zone. And granted, I thought that I had good reasons for that, 
But now looking back, I also realize we never articulated any of our thinking that led to the conclusion that we should start with zone. So here the player comes to me from the goodness of her heart to try to improve the team. And my reaction is to defend myself, not to engage, but to justify my decision. Well, now we fast forward five years later, and we're still having conversations with players and our captains about our scheme and about our offense and about our defense. And we've opened the door to feedback and to suggestions throughout the season. But my approach to their suggestions has changed in the sense that now, rather than me trying to defend, you know, the decisions that we've made as a coaching staff, I'm seeing their questions and their ideas more as an opportunity for us to educate them and to bring them up to speed, so to speak, about why we do what we do. We aren't necessarily going to spend 20 minutes a day in practice going through a dissertation about, you know, all the history that's led to this moment of why we're running this out of bounds play. But when it does come up, what we found especially when we've shared this with our captains and with our leaders, is that as we've taken time to walk them through the thinking that's led to the decision today, their buy-in tends to be much greater because now they have a, a broader understanding that this isn't just some whimsical thing. This isn't just something that coach saw on Twitter and now we're doing it. There was a lot of thought and a lot of discussion that's gone into it, and now they can better understand it. And so then what happens is when a freshman or a sophomore whose dad coached them in AAU and they always ran man-to-man -man defense asks a senior, are we ever going to run any man? They're carrying the water for us and educating them. At, well, here's why we're doing zone. We want to spend more time shooting. It saves us time in practice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so just seeing it as an opportunity rather than an attack or something that I have to defend myself from has really been a game changer for me as a coach. Yeah. And I actually, I just had a conversation a few hours ago uh, with a coach around this very topic. Coach has been playing a certain style of, of ball for about four years now. And he's now going to run going from eight playing eight players to probably playing like 10 to 12 and they're going to press and they're going to do some changes. And so he was, we were talking about this, this discussion, this team meeting he's going to have with them in the fall to kind of lay out the vision for, you know, the offense, the defense, the program, and the changes they're going to make, explain the why behind it. Not only that, this coach is going to do what a lot of other coaches have started to do, which I think is really beneficial. Is that parent meeting that he has at the beginning of the year, he's going to sit down with the parents and he's going to explain their system, their style of play, some of the common terminology, why they play it, how they train it, and the long-term vision. And that explain that to parents helps to educate them around just the complexity. You know, and it's not to put up a wall and say, no, no, don't question me. It's just say, hey, this is what we're trying to do with the team. And it's going to take a few months maybe to get where we want to go. Once again, just trying to provide more information. Now, my, my encouragement to you and to all these other coaches is to try to do what Anson Dorrance does so well at UNC. He says, hey, this is how we're going to play. But then he asks players to poke holes in this. He asks, hey, question anything and everything. I want you to ask questions because I want all your doubts put to rest or as much as I can do to put your doubts to rest so you can fully buy in and commit to this. And I think that's an important step in there is just not just, hey, what, what questions do we have around you know, how to execute it? But like, what are you struggling with? You know, what, what, what doubts do you have? And, and let's, let's try to get those on the table rather than they leave the meeting and they're all of a sudden they're kind of talking in the locker room. Well, I don't think this is going to work. You know, those, those very concerns. And, and so that's my big encouragement for coaches. Communicate as much as you can beforehand 
and then start to open up and try to get those questions and those, those doubts on the table before you really kind of get into the, the, the heat of the season. Well, I think there's a couple challenges here, uh, JP, for coaches. I remember listening to TJ Rosine on the Hardwood Hustle, and he was talking about having parent meetings. And he's a college coach. You know, we don't think necessarily about college coaches having parent meetings during the season. But he said one of the reasons that he doesn't have those meetings is because he said, how do I sit down with a parent in a 15-minute conversation? We're talking about their son's playing time. And I've got 30 years of experience as a player and as a head coach. His dad was a head coach who grew up in a coaching family that have all built up to frame my philosophy and my decision-making style and have informed me on who to play and why for this year's team. He's like, I, I can't put 30 years of explanation in a bottle and hand it to that parent so that they will understand completely where I'm coming from and why we're doing what we're doing. And so I think what we've settled on, I do agree with you that the more that you can present up front, especially about those core values and beliefs and who we're going to be or when we make a change in course or scheme or whatever it might be to be able to lay that out, we really try to do that using signature stories. And I think about, you know, going back to my example before about, you know, players earning play time. At some point, if this becomes an issue that needs to be addressed in a parent meeting or in a meeting with our players during the season, it's not just an articulation of earning it is important to me as a coach. There's a story. We go back to a time where we played an underclassman in front of an upperclassman, and we explain how we went through the process of making that decision and how the outcome was beneficial for the team. Sometimes we even bring those players in. Like last season, we had an issue where a freshman was coming in. We expected that she's going to have a chance to play a lot. Sometimes that can rock the boat. Sometimes players can become jealous. Sometimes upperclassmen can try to freeze that player out, whether it's on the court or off the court. And so we had a situation like that 10 years ago with a player named Nico. And so we zoomed Nico into our camp and she told the story about how the seniors, her freshman year brought her along and they helped her learn the offense. And then it's a bit of a Hollywood story because she played some huge minutes for us at the state tournament and played a big game that allowed us to go on to play in a state championship. And so, but through the story, we were able to articulate not only why is this important, but why it matters. And I think players can connect. I think parents can connect better to stories that illustrate some of those convictions or some of those core values. And on top of that, JP, when Nico made that presentation, we recorded it, put it on YouTube and just shared the link in our weekly email with parents that maybe they wanted to hear you know, the same. So we're trying to expose them to some of that without, without overwhelming them. I want to add one more thing too. You talked about Anson Dorrance inviting feedback, inviting players to poke holes in, you know, in the system that they're running. Before we would do that, and we've done things like that before, especially with our captains, we've red teamed that as a coaching staff first. So if we say, look, I think we're going to play, you know, use the example of playing 10 or 12 players and going to a different, you know, defensive system. As assistant coaches, as a coaching staff, we've talked through. What are the holes? Who's going to complain? What's that like for number seven, eight, nine, ten? They're playing a little bit more. What's that like for one, two, three, four, five? They're playing a little bit less. You know, what do you think their criticisms are going to be? We've tried to see it through their lens, through the parents' lens, the administrators' lens, so we can anticipate as much of that feedback as possible, and then start to think about, okay, how do we answer that criticism? What do we think about that? 
So we've we've kind of red teamed that before we even open it up to the players. And I think that's helped to prepare us a little bit more for some of the feedback to anticipate some of the criticisms um, that might come our way. So we're better prepared to be able to answer those or engage those than if we were to just open it up and then sort of <laughs> on the fly, try to figure out how to respond. Yeah, I love what you're talking about there. You know, really what I think we've been driving at here is trying to get ahead of so many of the complaints and issues and the, you know, the feedback that we're going to get. Because so much of the feedback that we get actually does come in the form of complaints and so much of that we can anticipate. And if we just do a better job communicating, we eliminate so many of those things and those issues. Now, at the end of the day, those, we're still going to get feedback and it's oftentimes going to come in the form of complaints. And one thing I really appreciated that Chip Huth shared with us on the podcast, Chip was a, he's a leadership consultant now, but he was the head of a SWAT team in, in Kansas City for, for many decades, actually. And early on when he was leading that, that unit, he talked about how they would get a lot of feedback. It was the form of complaints, uh, but they just kind of explained away. It's like, hey, this is the cost of doing business. I mean, you're going to go in there, you're going to knock down doors, you're going to rough some people up, you know, complaints are going to happen. But yet he had to make a change as a leader and to really actually listen to those complaints, right? Listen to that feedback and make adjustments in his leadership. And I think that's really very, very challenging for us as leaders. Oftentimes when we do get complaints, we explain them away. It's just this generation today. It's just parents today. You know, they're, they're all entitled. Like we come up with all these explanations around why they shouldn't feel that way. Why they shouldn't think that. And the reality is our reality. Our reality as a coach is the story that they're telling themselves, right? They're still going to show up to, to practice feeling like they're entitled to playing time, feeling you know disgruntled about how long practices are going or the fact that you're running zone defense and they think you should be running man defense, right? Whatever complaint or whatever issue they have for you or with you, like bottom line is that's the story they're telling, and it's part of your reality. And so we as coaches have to find ways to listen and engage with some of those complaints and not put up our walls and just try to explain everything away. Well, I think for me, JP, that's almost become a little bit of an intellectual challenge. When a player comes and says, you know, we'd rather play man-to-man defense than play zone, rather than get defensive or rather than just excuse it away because players these days, they don't, they don't have a stick-to-itiveness. Now I'm starting to think, well, why do they think that? You know, I'm accepting their perspective and now trying to put myself in their shoes and try to understand how did they get to this conclusion? And a lot of times what I find is that they just have a more narrow perspective, obviously, as a player than what you do as a coach. So if a player comes to me, this happened a couple of years ago, player comes up and says, coach, can we shoot more free throws in practice? We never shoot free throws in practice. They can shoot before, they can shoot after. But we just don't have enough practice time, in my opinion, to spend a lot of time shooting free throws. So I asked her, I said, well, we could. What do you want to not do? Well, she didn't think about that. If we take 10 minutes to shoot, quote unquote, pressure free throws, do you not want to practice out of bounds plays? Do you want to take it out of scout? Do you want to take it out of our other shooting? You know, what do you want to take away? Because we don't have an unlimited amount of time. And as she started thinking about it, I think she came to the same conclusion that all the things we were doing in practice were probably more important than shooting free throws that may or may not make a difference in the game. And we're talking about just a couple of points here versus, you know, defensive coverage that could cost you 10 points or whatever. But the difference there is just she had a more narrow perspective than the coach. 
No, I, I've had captains JP come to me and say, you know, I think we should play so-and-so, or can you give this person some run? Because I feel like we need drivers on the floor and we can't get the ball to the basket. And in my mind, I'm thinking, who's she going to guard? So we shouldn't be surprised when a player doesn't see the whole picture. But again, I think there's value in trying to understand, well, how did they get to this conclusion behind their suggestion? And then what information, what vantage point, what perspective are they lacking? Again, just to educate and say, no, I do think I've thought about that. And I've said that to players a lot. We've spent a lot of time talking about that as a coaching staff. And here's why we've decided to do it this way. And it becomes a conversation and it becomes an opportunity to educate them further. And I'll be honest with you, JP, there are times where as that conversation goes along, and the players, the wheels start turning in their heads, sometimes they do come up with something better than what we did as a coaching staff. So there can be value there if we open ourselves up to it. But sometimes it takes a little work to be able to get them through the process of understanding and then to be able to harvest some of those ideas that are maybe a little bit more refined with more perspective on the player's behalf. There's something here I would share that's been helpful for me, which is there's no such thing as criticism. There's just feedback. Criticism is how I choose to view that feedback. And I try to kind of view it as something negative. And I, I, if I reflect back on many times where may, maybe I have gotten feedback from players or parents around how we were playing the game or how the team was being run, my response becomes defensive because that opinion is really tied to my identity or how like, I think they're questioning my effectiveness as a coach and a leader, not the idea. And so often I think we, we make that connection and all of a sudden it's like, well, they're challenging me and they, they don't trust me. And I thought they would believe me. Like we just expect this blind trust and faith. And so just, Hey, this is feedback. This, they don't understand the way I see things, but let's start from a place of trying to understand how they see things. And if I can do that first, then they're going to be heard. And then I might have the opportunity to walk them through how I see things. And there's a great example of this where I think if I had taken my ego out of it, I would have been a better coach. Years ago, I mean, I know we're talking about man and zone defenses here. I was a man defense in, in basketball, super committed to it. And it was almost tied to my identity of how I wanted us to be a tough, disciplined team, play together. And I saw zone defenses, the lazy man's defense, you know? And so I had a few players over the course of this, you know, the couple, you know, actually a couple of years be like, Hey coach, why can we play more zone? Can we play more zone? And I was like, guys, we can start playing zone when you guys learn to play hard playing man. You know, like that was, that was typically my response. And eventually I really started to listen and to understand and actually walk through that intellectual exercise that you talked about there with my players. And I realized most of our players, over 75% of our roster came from the football field a month after our season had started. And we barely saw them in the summer to actually play man-to-man defense when you can't get in the shape that you need to. And you know, it's a lot of work to build up to that was actually a really dumb idea. And I actually cost my team a lot of games because I stuck to that and it was my ego, right? And so I think we really have to leave our ego at the door in those conversations and then start to first understand their perspective. Don't jump in and get into your explanation and walk them through how you see things. First, just really try to ask questions to better understand how they see things. One of the things we've done over the years, JP, in situations like that, 
when maybe there's two paths forward. I'll give you an example. Last year in our regional final, we played a, a team that has a point guard that's going to the University of Iowa. She's really, really good. And she's torched us in our first two games during the regular season. And so in the run up to that game, we basically had two different coverages that we could go with. We could chase her around, make it hard for her to get the ball. We could stay in our base defense. Now, if you just left that decision up to me, I probably would have stayed in our base defense because that's what we played all season long. And I felt like that's what was most effective consistently throughout the year, even though this particular player had some success against it in our first two games. But our Cowboy defense, it was just a little bit different mentality. We're going to go after her. We're going to make it hard for her to touch it. We're going to challenge everything. And we're going to see if you know her teammates can make plays. Both of them had vulnerabilities and both of them had paths to success. I wasn't necessarily sold on one or the other. And so what we did in our, one of our team meetings before the game, a couple of days before as we're getting ready, is I basically listed out on the whiteboard. I said, look, we can go in cowboy coverage and here would be the advantages. Here'd be the disadvantages. We can stay in base. This is what it would look like. Here's what we could take away. Here's what we would give away. And then we opened it up for the team just to discuss and decide what do you guys want to do? And out of that meeting, based on all the input from the coaches and the players, they decided that they wanted to chase this point guard around because they wanted to take the fight to her rather than sit back and let her attack. They wanted to challenge her from the start. Now, if I'm being totally honest with you, JP, I wasn't super comfortable with that. Like, again, I wouldn't have chosen that decision, but I felt like the enthusiasm of the players and the mentality of, we're not backing down. We're going to come right up to you in your face. Put us in a better place to start the game, just a better mindset to start the game. And the players were bought into the decision because they had input into the decision. And at the end of the day, when you put yourself in that position, it is a little bit vulnerable, right? Because you're, you're giving away kind of that decision. You're giving away a little bit of control to your players. And if it, if it goes well, it's great, right? And they deserve all the credit for that. And you actually gain credibility because you brought them into a decision that worked. And quite honestly, and this is what happened in our situation, it didn't go very well. We didn't have a good start to the game and we changed our defense after about four minutes. But maybe on the other side of that, you know, the players are thinking, uh, maybe coach was right when he made that presentation about staying in base defense. And maybe I do gain a little bit of credibility that way as well. Yeah, I mean, I think regardless of the outcome, one thing is for sure, you earned trust, you know, and I think so often one thing that I've learned is that just having conversations, not just saying, okay, I hear you. Thanks. Thanks for the feedback and moving on from parents, from players, from administrators, but sitting down and having a conversation, being genuinely curious is something that sometimes just some people really enjoy. I remember years ago, I had a player named Peter Burse, and Peter loved to talk. He loved to talk about everything, but he loved to watch NBA games and come in and tell me a play that he saw this NBA team run or what they were doing here, and hey, we need to do that. And for years, I would just kind of ignore him. Like, well, Peter, we can't do that because we don't have guys that are seven foot two, and we can't, you know, like we cannot run the Warriors offense. I'm sorry, right? Um, but as I matured as a coach, and I know he matured a little bit as well too, but we would start to just sit down and have conversations, you know, and just, what do we like about that? And just enjoyed that time, right? Uh, you know, how would it, it would be cool to run something like that? Or how might we make that work? Just, just having these conversations and just our relationship improves so much 
because I stopped seeing this as a criticism of my coaching and, and something that I have to even defend or make an argument of every time, but just sometimes a conversation and just understanding how other people see the game. And then they, Peter had a really, really high basketball IQ. And some of those conversations actually led to some pretty unique adjustments that we made that won us a lot of games that year. I think what's valuable in that story that you shared there, JP, is that you learned to understand that the player in a lot of ways just wanted to be heard and like to talk ball. And that was, that was validating. That was affirming for them. I, I think back to, again, my experience at Linmar, one of the criticisms going out the door, the AD shared with me is that the players never really felt like they were heard, or at least that's what they were telling her. And as I thought about that, I thought, I, I thought of an example when a player came to me and they said, you know, we want to do more ball handling drills in practice, like two ball dribbling. And I remember my reaction to that was, I don't want to go back 10 years in time to something that we used to do and have found something that works much better now playing live one-on-one or whatever it might be. And in that conversation, however, I explained that away, the player walked out of my office and thought, coach isn't listening to us. And I think that's really tough. Like, I, I don't necessarily know that there's something that I could have said, could have presented that would have made them feel differently if we didn't change, if that makes sense. But I do think that that's one of the big challenges is how do you affirm somebody that's coming to you with feedback, even though in the back of your mind, you're thinking, we're not going to do that. Like we're not, we're just not going backwards in time. Not only that, Nate, I think we don't want them just to be heard, but when people give us feedback, privately or even publicly within in front of a team, we want to encourage more of it because feedback is just information to help us to learn and grow. And we want there to be that dialogue and that communication. And so if players have certain ideas, even if they may feel like they are outdated ways of doing things, we want to continue to encourage that dialogue. I mean, that's, that's a healthy culture has a lot of, dialogue, discussion, argument that's very focused on the tasks, right? The process, the way you do things. It becomes problematic when the feedback and the conflict and the argument becomes personal. And sometimes we as a coach make it personal. Sometimes the player, the parent, the administrator, they make it personal. Um, and I think what is my, one of my big encouragements for coaches is Sometimes the idea may be a horrible idea or just the way they present it or share that feedback with us could be, could, could feel disrespectful. And there is definitely areas where we need to draw a line and set some boundaries as far as how a player or how a parent would speak to us, right? There's definitely some boundaries that we need to be better at as coaches and administrators need to be better at, you know, setting these boundaries with parents and players and how they speak to, to, to coaches, for sure. But I, if I look back at the course of my career as a coach, I would say there's more times than not that I tuned out a message, some feedback a player had for me because I didn't like the way they communicated it to me. And, I, and there's this great line in Radical Candor by Kim, Kim Scott. And Kim, Kim was an executive in Silicon Valley at Apple and, and Google and all those. And and I love this bit. She says, if a person is bold enough to criticize you, do not critique their criticism. If you see somebody criticizing a peer inappropriately, say something. But if somebody criticizes you inappropriately, your job is to listen with the intent to understand 
and then reward the candor. And I think that is just such a great encouragement. And I wish I had known that so many years ago because instead of listening to the feedback, I blocked it off and focused on how they communicated it to me. And I could have still coached them on how to better communicate that in the future to me. But when I look at like cultural issues and challenges, so often, so often, they're like mushrooms. They grow in the dark because they're not brought to light, right? So we have to bring issues and things to light before they grow into bigger things. And I think this is really, really important for us. And so we have to encourage and develop a culture where people can speak openly about what they're feeling. And sometimes that means that we have to work really hard to not take something personal, even though it may feel really personal. When it comes to engaging ideas and and bringing them into the light, and I do think that's important for all the reasons that you described there, I'm reminded of a book I read a long time ago called The Courage to Teach by Parker Palmer. And the book was really about, in a classroom setting, how do you get students to better engage with ideas and conversation and dialogue? But the analogy that he used was, he said, look, if JP comes to class with an idea, you're going to be predisposed to defending your idea. It's going to be hard for you to separate yourself from the thoughts that you're presenting to the class. But the way that he frames it is with his class, with his students, is he says, but what if JP brought a picture instead? Like, let's say that JP is trying to get the class to better understand firebombing during World War II. So you come in with a picture of a city burned to the ground, right, because of the Allied bombing. And now we put it in the middle of the room and everybody's looking at the picture and we're asking, what can we learn from this? What conclusions can we draw? What questions come from looking at the picture? Well, JP, you brought the picture, but you didn't take it. And so you're a little bit more open to other people's perspective because it's not yours. And he tells his students, when you come to class with an idea or coaches, when you present something to your team or to your assistant coaches, think of it as a picture that you're bringing for everyone to look at. Not necessarily something that's just yours, but now we're trying to engage and learn a little bit more by putting it in the middle of the room and asking everybody to just sort of talk about what do you see from your perspective? And if you can get a little bit of separation so that we don't become defensive, so it doesn't become our idea that's being thrown under the bus, you'll find, number one, your players and your assistant coaches are likely to be more open with what they actually think. And when they are more open, that typically means we're going to get better feedback that's going to make for better decision-making. But there is a process, I think, of being intentional in our approach that says, it's an idea that started with me, but I can let go of it, I can put it in the room, and we can see what everyone thinks for the benefit of our team. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Coaching Culture Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, we're grateful for people who take 15 to 30 seconds just to leave us a review. And I know your friends appreciate it when you send them an episode that they find valuable. So don't hesitate to share today's episode.